0: What's your name? Kurt Bloom. What's your job and what
1: year did you start it? Director of Broadcasting with the Birmingham Barons. Started with them in 1992.
0: 1992. Okay, so let me just throw out a random year. Uh, 1994. Anybody famous playing on the
1: 1994 Barons team? Sure. Mike Robertson, Kevin Coglin, Scott Tedder. Kenny Coleman. I mean, those are household names. (laughs) Yeah, those guys were legends. Um, Yes, get their baseball cards. (laughs) Oh, oh, there was one other guy too, Michael Jordan.
0: Michael Jordan. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, hardwood meets hardball. Michael Jordan played one and only one season of minor league baseball, and Kurt Bloom was there for every game, every at bat, every bus ride, every visiting hotel, every mob scene, as fans wanted a glimpse of the greatest basketball player alive trying to play professional baseball. Cannot wait for this one. Kurt Bloom is next on Life Around the Scenes. <music> Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around
1: all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes. A podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan.
0: you and see you here on Zoom. And thanks for taking uh, some time. I'm sure you're getting a lot of interviewer requests these days, just when you think that your life with Michael Jordan is departed. And then we have a global pandemic and ESPN uh, rushes out a 10 part series. And now we can't get enough MJ once again.
1: The Barons front office, including myself, we're more famous now than we were 26 years ago. I mean, when people ask me for an interview, I'll be like, hold on a second. Let me check my schedule. Uh, Let me slide you in. And I, you know the the thing, Josh, enjoy it. just enjoy that ride. That's what I'm trying to do. How many other people are
0: were working for the Barons front office then who are still working like yourself?
1: Uh, that's great great question. uh Jonathan Nelson, who interesting was in group sales and when when you know you've been in baseball a lot yourself or for a long time um you do you wear a lot of different hats, so he was in group sales, he was in p a backed up p a announcer. Um, he was in concessions, he did what, well, 26 years later, he's now president and general manager of the Birmingham Barons. So uh, he and I, the the, the two last uh, Warriors still with the Birmingham Barons uh, then, after, and, and currently.
0: All right, so let's get into the timeline here. Let me remind the audience of the timeline. June 20th, 1993, it was game six of the NBA Finals. That's when Jordan and the Bulls finished off Charles Barkley and the Suns. And so that was three straight NBA titles for the Bulls. About three and a half months later, Jordan announced his retirement. That came on October 6th of 1993. And then almost exactly four months later, on February 7th of 1994, Jordan signed a baseball contract with the Chicago White Sox. Why the White Sox? Well, their owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, also owned the Bulls. So at the time, Kurt, we didn't know. Whether this was just for spring training, whether Jordan was going to go to the minors, we had a feeling he was probably not going to be in the majors, but we certainly didn't know which minor league team. So where are you when this news starts to break February 7th, 1994, that Michael Jordan has signed a professional contract with the organization in which you broadcast for their double A affiliate?
1: I thought as if, any like everybody else, I would snap that it would not happen, that yeah, so he signed a contract, big deal. That doesn't mean he's going to go to spring training. It doesn't mean he's going to go and it's going to last. And it doesn't mean that he's going to wind up getting on an airplane and going to a minor league city. You know, I, I, total shock, total disbelief in the whole thing. Later on, you take that schedule, whether you're going to ask that or not. You know, what happened on March 31st is when he was assigned – and I still was very pessimistic and very disbelief that this thing was really going to happen. And you know, like everything else, Michael does, he proved a whole lot of people wrong.
0: So I'm looking at the White Sox affiliates from that year. Their Triple A team was in Nashville. Double A team, Birmingham, Alabama. Single A team was Prince William, that is uh, the county that's in Virginia. Uh, that team is now Potomac. And then the Low A affiliate was South Bend, Indiana.
1: Why did the White Sox choose Double A? Yeah, and I, I think that's a great question. And I think there were many reasons. First of all, of his age. So at 31, that really wiped out the A-ball clubs. Okay, so that leaves AA, AAA. And one of the things that's very underrated, Josh, is, is that we are the home of Dr. James Andrews, um, the, the famed orthopedic surgeon. His office literally is across from the new ballpark, uh, although, he, again, he has a place down in Florida, but his Birmingham facility is right there. And I thought that had a big play in it in case something went wrong. Now, the other thing is, you take this back 26 years, the Hoover Met was really in its infant stages and was one of the most spacious um, and friendly ballparks where there was a huge training room. Huge facility, locker rooms, and everything. and that that was one of the things that I thought was a again a major difference where he couldn't go to these small cramped as we you know the bus leagues or the um, going to the hickories of the world and and, and uh, Greensboro's it, it just it just didn't fit so I thought the fit of Birmingham if any would have been the best fit and you know again our city our town our front office we all got really lucky. <laughs>
0: You mentioned that date, March 31st, when you found out that he'd been assigned to Birmingham. Describe the scramble for the staff to get ready from, we got, all of a sudden, we're selling more tickets. All of a sudden, holy cow, the media demands that are going to happen. Um, just getting ready for MJ with a very short amount of time.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the key. A lot of people think we had all off-season to prepare. We, we had nothing. We, we really had two days And there's still so much shock and disbelief that it's actually going to happen. So you're kind of thinking, well, if I sell this fence sign and I sell the program ad and I sell these tickets, what if he doesn't come? Because I didn't think he'd come. So he had this gray area, but you know, with any success comes leadership at the top and the top of the Birmingham Barons in the front office was a guy by the name of Bill Hardikoff. And my current president and general manager, Jonathan Nelson, Learned a lot. He was on staff at that time, as we mentioned. When we get to the staff on the field, it was Tito Francona, um, who's got two World Series rings and three appearances. So I I just think that everything fell into place. So you go back to March 31st, and I remind everybody we didn't have cell phones. And my favorite story about that day, for at least seven to ten days, the only outbound line that we had was the fax machine. Okay, so if you had to call a client or you had to call, God forbid, you had to call your family up, you pick up the phone at the fax machine in the room, little office, you know, about that big, and you're like, hey, this is me on the fax, because you couldn't get a phone line. All all six lines were tied up for about three or four or five, six, seven straight days.
0: Once Michael arrives... Uh, let's start with the first game, uh, just the media crush, the, the fan interest, the, um, the, the, the parking for, for fans and everything else. Um, d- describe those, those initial days of this is our new life <laughs> with Michael Jordan.
1: Well, as well, Jonathan Nelson, our boss, says, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it, uh, hashtag uh, REM. Um, it, big part about the assignment, again, was the facility. And you just mentioned parking, which is underrated. Hoover Met holds 3,500 parking spaces, which is huge. Um, That first day, and it's very important when you tell the story, it was game two for the Barons. Game one, Michael was playing at the Windy City Classic. So he was playing against the Cubs, actually got a base hit. Um, So game two of the season was his first game. And by two o'clock, it was just so thick in terms of the buzz. And for me, reading... Um, my entire life, I, I read all good broadcasters, we read as much as we possibly can. Now you have internet, but I had newspapers and we had whatever we had back then. But I had a chance to meet Mike Lupica of the New York Daily News, uh, Lacey Banks of Chicago, Jackie McMullen of Boston, all of the Detroit, San Francisco, all the NBA cities sent their beat writers. And so we, on that night, we had 150 credentialed media. Um, which include yeah, which included worldwide. Um, it, it, and as big as that press box is, we, we double stacked it as well. So, and that first week, his first series, pretty much the whole 150 stayed around. So it was uh, quite a quite an assignment.
0: 150. I would think that did some of them have to sit in suites or in the stands? Yeah, and again, this yeah, is before down, internet yeah. when they're all filing their stories through through a landline,
1: right? Right, right, yeah, and they did. Um, they were down the first and third baselines where, again, the ballpark has suites. Um, we, you know, one of the first ballparks that really had luxury suites. So w- we extended down the right field. We extended down the left field line. Uh, we double stacked the press box. So you had two layers of, of, of wood. So the first group and then the group on top of that – um, and we try to – got to give credit to Chris Pike, I'm my media relations director. You know, look, you got New York, Chicago, Detroit, L.A. They're going to get a little bit better seat than the smaller newspapers and, you know, TV stations that came over from wherever, they else, wherever else they came from.
0: For you personally, that first game, describe the, the adrenaline, the, the butterflies, if any, that you had, especially as Jordan comes to the plate for the first time.
1: First thing is, on one shoulder was a Chicago TV station with a camera, right on me, and then on the other shoulder was ESPN. So in your mind, you're going, whoa, this is a little different, okay? (laughs) This is not announcing, here comes Scott Tedder. They they really just didn't focus on that. The ad bat itself, and Josh, you're an experienced broadcaster, and I knew, absolutely knew, First of all, you're only going to get one chance to do it with TV, radio, and okay, so you got to nail it. But more importantly, I wanted to let the moment live and breathe. And that's something younger broadcasters, you and I, we teach them now. So fortunately for me, I, I, um, I, I was before the PA came in and I said, check your time. And really, you look back on it, people compare that to what Vin Scully did. Um, and so I said, All right, look at your watch. It's because uh, he came up in the bottom of the third, it's 8:14 central time. Here he is. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And then 30 seconds of complete silence. How are you going to talk over that? You know? And, and that's what I did. Um, as the at bat is going, you're, you're like, what's going to happen? You know, and you wanted him to at least make contact, not strike out. Cause if he strikes out that first at bat, Everyone's going, this is a flop, this is a circus and all that. And he had a flare out towards right center, right fielder Chad Tola, big league guy, would uh, make the catch on the run. So, yeah, and then after that, we kind of <laughs> took our breath.
0: By the way, I'm going to plug this a couple of times, but Kurt's personal website has a whole bunch of clips of that first at-bat, of Jordan's first home run, of the one-on-one interview that he did with Jordan. Uh, Charles Barkley joined him in the booth. I listened to all that within the last week. All great stuff. Really glad that you were able to save it and that it didn't get lost in the transition from what I presume would have been cassette uh, tapes back then and that you've now been able to digitize.
1: Nice. Nice. All cassette unbelievable. Only broadcasters and only guys 25 and older would understand that. We lugged around the old morants. And, uh, and and that's how I got it and you know, play record every day and then you go back and uh, you know, hold on one second, if I got it within striking distance, yes, hold on. This might be the most important piece ever, okay? Yeah, I'm not sure you can capture that. You see this guy right here? Yeah. Alright, you put your cassette in here and then right there, right there is your USB. Okay, so you now transfer here onto USB. Then you go to your computer and your uh, Audacity and whatever else. It's, it's unbelievable. Josh, I sat on those tapes for 26 years of cassettes, just looking at them every off-season. Like, what are you going to do? When are you ever going to use that? So, So thanks for the plug on the website, by the way.
0: So, so was it this off season because of the Jordan documentary that you decided to finally digitize these or mm-hmm. when and where?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that sparked everything as an announcer. And, and again, you've been in the game for a while now. Um, I was looking for a reason to launch, launch a website. Um, I, I you, you just don't put one out there now, you know, Kurt who cares? You know I mean? You have to have a reason. And the day ESPN said, we're moving this up to April and, and there was no baseball, I was thinking, and one of my former media relations directors was thinking, and in fact, he's from Chicago, so it worked out perfectly. And he's like, "You know, you've got something there. And he'd been working on putting a website together. And um, if it wasn't for them moving it up, I don't know if I would have had the website ready or the audio. But believe me, once they made their announcement, it gave me two weeks, I about two weeks to put everything together, categorize it and, and get it ready. All
0: right. One of my favorite stories about Michael Jordan was the bus. Now I was in college, but I remember reading about the bus and hearing you. about you the bus. Good. Yeah. Des- describe what is, what is fact and what is fiction about the bus that Jordan got for the team? The most important
1: fiction is that he bought it. Never bought it. Didn't- didn't spend a dime. Michael's very, very thrifty and cautious with his money, by the way. It's not like, you know, here you go, here you go. Um, his name helped arrange a lease with a couple of other different companies. And that's really, that. that's the fact. Uh, the fact is that it was a new bus. And it wasn't extraordinary. I would tell people, because it made a great story. We had waitresses. We had flat screens. We had cell phones. We had movies. They weren't even invented back then. All that stuff was not even possible, but it made for a great story. But um, it was new, and if you go back to when you were riding the buses in the Bush Leagues, okay, every bus that we had ever been on before that was 10 or 15 years old. Uh, You know, not only the Barons, Huntsville, Jacksonville, Mobile, um, all those clubs, real old buses, Greenville was in the league, Memphis was in the league. So what made it a spectacular story was, of course, he wrote on it. It had a catchy name, the Jordan Cruiser. It had catchy colors to it, and it was new. So new is a new toy, and new was nice, but it wasn't anything extraordinary or luxurious. The only thing that separated it at the the end of the day, in the very back, Josh, right down the center aisle, there was a circular couch, And that was put in for him to stretch his legs and try to get comfortable. It didn't work. And then the second thing that distinguished the bus happened late, late, late in the season. He painted his autograph on both sides of doors, everything else. Kind of like a bus that I'll be, you know, if we ever play ball this year, I'll be on the bus again. Same company, by the way, we're still with the same company. I
0: I like some of the the dynamics of bus riding. So um, for the most part, Almost every team. The manager sits in the front seat on the right, and then the pitching coach or the hitting coach is usually to the left, and they basically take up the first two rows. And then the next two rows is some combination of broadcaster and trainer, and then it's the players after that. What do you recall about the pecking order of where people sat that year on that bus?
1: Well, Michael started in the back. Like I said, he started on that circular couch, which again allowed him to be one of the guys. And that's what his whole goal was to be a Birmingham Baron and fit in, not have this, no pun intended, air about him. But more importantly, you know, I'm a right fielder. I'm an outfielder just like you and you. And and, and let's chat. Let's talk. Um, he realized a few weeks into that that it wasn't comfortable. And so he would make his way up to that group that you're talking about, uh, up to near the front. And, and who's going to tell him now? Right. Uh, let's yep. talk about
0: the the scene at visiting hotels, especially when you have a bus that's like that, and especially once his yep. autograph is on both sides. You're not showing up unannounced. So, what are some of your memories of some of the more wild, or, or even some of the uh, quieter scenes, uh, checking into visiting
1: hotels? Security was was obvious. Now, we didn't travel with a policeman or a local sheriff or anything like that, but you better believe when we did travel, they were at the hotel waiting. And they were certainly at the ballpark. And when we got to the ballpark, there was a policeman stationed at each end of the dugout. I, I say this, and I'm glad you brought that up. He stayed, Michael stayed at every hotel we stayed at, rode every bus ride that we did. There was no special treatment at all. So if we're on the, you know, La Quintas were big back then, you know. So if, if we we're on the second floor of the La Quinta, there's a chance you might be, two doors down for Michael Jordan, you know, there was one guy that he traveled with. His name is George Kohler and George is Michael's best friend and his personal assistant, but he never got dressed up with a, with a, you know, any protection or anything along those lines. George sat on the bus like everybody else did, but that was it. When were the quietest times for Michael Jordan and the Barons that year? Bus rides. Um, when he, After he was done playing seven hours of Yahtzee with Tito Francona um, and Mike Barnett and Kirk Champion, you know, there was a time to shut it down. And and you could just see it was really one of those neat moments to see him, you know, try to close his eyes and and get some rest. Those moments were few and far between. And there was um, he spent some time in the training room, not because he was hurt, but as you know, training rooms are fairly off limits you and i we're full-time guys with our ball clubs but a a tv station couldn't come in a radio station couldn't come in there so um he built a bond in there just to you know play just to relax and remember the last dance brought out what we're seeing now he was fried by the time he joined the barons mentally I love that quote. He told Phil, he goes, physically, I got a little bit maybe, but mentally, I'm, I'm way out. I'm done. I'm fried. I can't take this anymore.
0: I'm sure this question would be answered differently for different people, So I, so I acknowledge that. But in terms of getting over being in awe that Michael Jordan is there, for you, for some of the players, for the coaching staff, when do you think that it kind of just settled in and that awe factor, if it ever did go away, started to go away?
1: Second half. So that means the first half, every single day, every player, every visiting player, every broadcaster, everybody, every GM, opposing GM, it didn't stop. And plus, we had people coming in from all over Europe, uh, Japan. You know, Michael uh, was the first worldwide star, and he was huge in Japan. And that year, we were owned by the Japanese. And then sometime in the second half of the season, I would say July, late June, early July, things finally slowed down and you, you accepted. Now, hey, at that point, you want him to produce. He's not Michael Jordan, the basketball player superstar. You're just like, hey, man, we need a hit. Forget your resume. We're down 3 nothing, and we got a guy on base. Let's go.
0: When I listened to the interview, that you did with him, the one-on-one interview, it sounded like it was toward the end of the season. Uh, the word trust got used toward the end. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, for, for, for you and I, we walk a fine line as employees of the team where we want to let the fans in and kind of give them some behind the scenes and be their conduit, but at the same time, we have to be careful about what we say. Um, describe what it
1: was like earning the trust of Michael Jordan. Oh, man, and, and that was everything, everything. Unfortunately for me, I had two great leaders, Bill Hardikoff as mentioned, president, general manager, and Tito Francona, the manager. And I sat down with both of them separately just to try to map out a game plan. And ultimately, and I get asked by other broadcasters all the time, and, and they think that 1994 is 2020, uh, cell phones, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, all that. No. And so so Tito told me, he said, CB, you know, let it come to you. Um, you're going to be there every single day, every minute you will have access that no one in the world has ever had. And so for the first few months, Josh, it was my job to help the other media get what they wanted because I saw him every day, every place. So it was my job to take that information and bring it to the radio. Now, finally, when things slowed down, he had hit the home runs. And so I said to him, Hey, it's, it's now it's time. It was August, you know, the clock was ticking. I said, now it's time. So that word trust meant everything. And we sat down 15 minutes. He and I, it's all, like you said, on the, on the website, Kurtbloom.com. Um, and I thought everything he said was amazing. You know, my, and, and, and I, you know, I'll reveal, I haven't written down questions since. That was probably the last interview that I ever read. It's not that I don't prepare. But that one, I couldn't screw up. So they were all right there in front of me. And like, ask him about Dean Smith. <laughs> ask him about the shot against Georgetown, period. Yeah, that, that's how we went at it. But you listen to it and you hear how relaxed he was. And when I talked recently to his friend, George Kohler, he said to me, he said, why do you think you got that? And he said, because he trusted you. There you go. End of story. Write
0: the book. I would think, correct me if I'm wrong, that because all of the social media didn't exist and any sort of internet was maybe AOL dial-up in 94, that might have been the first year that I, that I knew what a website was, it probably made it um, less tempting for his teammates and for everybody because they couldn't record everything quite as easily,
1: whereas that would be a, a much different story now. I don't want to say it's impossible. You'd have to have the right people, but boy, there would be different rules You know, one of my favorite stories being a a New York native is Derek Jeter. And when you went into Jeter's uh, luxury apartment in New York, you know, he's got a basket at the front door and you put your phone in the basket. So there will be no recorded history of it. Well, that's, you know, that's kind of what we had. So it helped. I don't know if you can pull that off. Um, You know, LeBron comes to play baseball uh, or football, Wayne Gretzky decides it's time. You, know, I, you really now, nearly impossible, because somebody would have gathered, gotten somewhere somehow, uh, it would have, negatives would have come out. And that's one thing, Josh, we're very proud of. It all remained positive, a very positive experience. All right, so let's talk about the actual baseball.
0: Because the final stat line was a 202 batting average, 289, 266 slugging. However, he did have a 13-game hitting streak in April. Uh, late in April, he was hitting three twenty seven. And then, what, did they stop challenging him with fastballs? Talk about the first yeah. month, month and a half or so of the season.
1: Well, I don't think he saw anything but a fastball the first six weeks. And you time it, you're going to have a chance to hit it. You know, he's a tremendous athlete. He's got all the – the credentials you want the twitch that we talked about that fast twitch stuff and his hands were incredible but then they started figuring out you know i just can't lay this one across the plate and they started little wrinkles and all kinds of other dirty stuff there i will tell you this i've said it for 26 years and more importantly guys that are smarter than me mike uh, mike barnett and terry francona they said the same thing and then watching him progress his at bats were very competitive in the second half, and the staggering number you didn't mention—he hit three homers in the biggest ballpark in the minor leagues. I mean, I don't care where you personally have been, but you knew Hoover Met was a monster of a ballpark, and he hit three home runs. You can't hide it. Can't. There's no way that that was a
0: fluke. It actually made me wonder. So I always knew that places like Albuquerque inflated offensive numbers because like, of the like. high elevation. And but it wasn't until I got into this job that I realized just how hard it is to hit in certain ballparks. And for the Southern League, you know, you're you're at sea level and the humidity and the big ballparks. And it made me wonder. You mentioned why the White Sox sent him to Double A, and that sounds um, very logical. But I'm wondering if he was in the Pacific Coast League with these high-elevation cities or if he was in the South Atlantic League where the offense is much higher, what his numbers
1: would have looked like. Well, the problem is, and you know this better than me, is you primarily have sliders, curveballs, change-ups on fastball counts. So he probably would have struggled a little bit more. And again, you, you talk about a guy who never played. At our level, you had pitchers that are still developing – And back in 1994, it was certainly a fastball and a a secondary pitch, not a third pitch, but a secondary pitch to go with it, usually a curveball. And, you know, again, you start working hard and working hard and recognizing it and seeing it. Um, Again, I think just everything was perfect for – you also – if you're going to measure him, Josh, you don't want to measure him out in the PCL where – I think you and I would run, close our eyes, run into a fastball, and all of a sudden we hit a home run Yeah, with, with all due respect. I mean, I, I'm making that up. But I, I think everything, again, was just the perfect fit, and the White Sox were very intelligent about that.
0: 30 stolen bases. For yeah. someone who only had a 289 on on-base percentage, for him to steal 30 bases, got thrown out 18 times, but still, 30 for 48 is pretty good
1: ratio. 30 stolen bases is pretty good. How do you how do you how do you fake that? How do you hide that? And, and the funny thing is about the 18 times that he was caught, uh, I would say about nine of them he was really safe, but the umpires wanted that. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, it's their TV moment. So um, I remember so many of them, and and you know he started getting frustrated, going really. So and he did things: the three homers and the and the 50 RBIs and the 30 bags. Gosh, you can't fake it. You have to give him credit and and understand this guy was Superman. He just didn't have a cape.
0: Yeah, the, the other thing that's impressive, and obviously, look, he's Michael Jordan. He was going to get as many at-bats as possible. You had to find out. But still, there's not a lot of guys right now who are playing 127 games. Remember, uh, for our audience, Kurt knows this, but for our audience, it's a five-month season. It's not a six-month season. Most teams are in the neighborhood of 140 games. It right. means that he played 127 out of about 140 games, 497 right. at-bats. That is a grind, and that really takes a toll, and that it's just another indication of what his dedication level was.
1: Yeah, it's a good way of putting it, and he embraced the grind. And what people don't know is that on a typical game day, speaking of that grind, he was grinding at around 12 o'clock while no one else was in the ballpark, and especially, again, on the road where you can measure it. So there was transportation for him on the road So for an hour, Prior to BP, he and Mike Barnett are underneath the stadium, whack, 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 you know, trying to work that swing and, and make contact and do all the little things that all your players do. Um, and then a regular BP after that. But he embraced that challenge. That's who he is. And I think by watching the last dance, you're seeing how much he does embrace that challenge. His first home run. His first home run came on July 30th,
0: 1994. It was his 354th at bat of the season. Again, people can hear your call of it on your website. What are some of your memories that we can't hear from that call that stand out in your mind?
1: Well, the first thing is he had hit the ball twice to the wall that game. So it was almost like a preview of like, mm, you better get ready. And, and certainly I didn't have a home run call for Michael Jordan. <laughs> um there were, what did we list, thirteen or 16,000 people. So it was electric. Um, he runs into a pitch, hit it well. As soon as it left, you could hear the call. As soon as he left the bat, I'm like, uh-oh, this is going to go. Now, the previous two at-bats, like I said, to the wall, you know, and, and this one here, um, it went. And just like his first at-bat, you have to remember, and you called thousands of home runs, let the moment breathe. So the phrase came out of my mouth, he's done it. And you don't say that about your average triple-A, double-A AA player. He's done it. You know, you're expecting them to do it. And then my typical call was Gonzo, then Jordan, inserted his last name. That's it. And then let him get around. I didn't say a word until he got around third base. Um, and only Michael could capture the moment. He pointed to the sky, And everyone's like, the whole press box and the media and everyone, okay, what was that all about? It was, I think it was his father's birthday. Wow. So again, he he steals the moment. That was his dad's gift. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable.
0: Wow. And you know, speaking of his dad, that was one of the big things is that his dad loved baseball and, and, you know, his dad had recently passed away and, um, and, and I, I don't know how much discussion you ever heard or whether it's just stuff that you read about how much of his um, desire to play baseball was based on his relationship with his dad and their family's love of baseball.
1: Rarely talked about it. If at all, I wanted to, again, um, let him initiate something. I, I will say this. Um, I went to school in North Carolina and North Carolina, like the state of Alabama it, it is so underrated in terms of, of its baseball tradition. And Back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, North Carolina had Tobacco Road and they had these, I guess they were called D teams and B teams and C league, you know, we now know them as the South Atlantic League and the Carolina League, but they had so, so that might've played into where his dad was, you know, a fan of all, you can go to all these small towns in the state of North Carolina, every one of them had a professional team, and that might have been it. Uh, that might have been the influence. I say that about Alabama. There, there are three Hall of Famers that were born in Mobile, you know, and, and Willie Mays is from, you know, right, right down over there from uh, Fairfield, Alabama. So, you know, underrated in terms of their baseball, and that might have had something to do with it.
0: You've used the word electric a couple of times about the crowds that went everywhere. Um, from a number standpoint, uh, I know you don't have them ex- exactly in, in front of you, but What do the Barons usually average per game or per season, and what was the attendance like
1: that year with Jordan? I'll start off with the most impressive number, and that is combined home and road, and that was just under $1 And you have to take that back to 1994, not Las Vegas of 2019, uh, not Albuquerque, and certainly not Charlotte, okay, Um, but 1994 – I believe you could look it up, drew more than the Expos, Marlins, you know, things like that. So a million people. It was 467 at home, which is a number that still stands, 467,000. And then, so you're looking at the average. Look, look, let me give you numbers that that I think we can relate to. On a good year for the Barons at Hoover Met, the target was 300,000. Somewhere between 250 and 300,000, and then you would be drawing about 4,000 people. So that year we did 467 at home. So we took that average to about 7,000, which included 16, 13. Every weekend was just completely uh, uh, over—not oversold, but we had we had overflow with people sitting in the berm and and the areas along those lines. But you know, in every game, as an announcer like you are, every game, you better be on your game because there's so many people there. And it was easy to get out, I'll tell you that. And we were not a very good team, but
0: I read about how there was a day in which there was a golf tournament that Jordan played in with him and Lee Trevino and Arnold Palmer and Charles Barkley. And then after the game, Charles Barkley and Bill's linebacker, Cornelius Bennett, are in the clubhouse and they're holding courts. And I'm wondering for you, are you thinking like, What world am I in that suddenly all of these people are
1: around us every day? Ito had the best story, Terry Francona, the best. We have lost that game, and we got our butts kicked. And he went into the locker room to air out everybody, including Jordan. You know, he was just really, really mad. And he looks up, and he sees Charles Barkley and Cornelius Bennett he goes, yeah, we'll get him next time. <laughs> and I was, he knew the pep talk, the Francona that we all know and love. It just wasn't going to work that day. So he, he saved the, the, uh, the butt chewing, as we say. Tell me about basketball pickup games. Uh, the, the famous screen. Uh, my highlight moment was a three-on-three. About two miles from the Hoover Met is a place that still stands called Rhyme, village, and it's a subdivision, okay? Um, they had an asphalt court. Every Sunday, because it stays light, late, so every Sunday, the Barons players and whoever else, we play pickup after the Sunday games. You usually play a Sunday game in our league, maybe two o'clock, maybe even earlier than that. So there's plenty of light, and after his teammates kept you know, poking him and egging him on. We finally, uh, there was a game in, in a time rather in August where we're about ready to play. And up comes the Mercedes MJ JJ. And you see it actually in the last dance, the the JJ's for his wife at the time, uh, the MJ, obviously. So anyways, we break out. I mean, I it just like being the announcer. I had no, I, there was no game plan. So I happen to wind up on his team. It was like, all right, you, you, and you against these three guys, you know. And the, we start off with the ball, and, and I'm not standing now. I'm six foot. That's where I cut it off. And he's six six. And well, you know, my street ball. When you when you play when you play, you set a pick, you set a screen. So he gets the ball, and and like the, the nerdy, non-athletic guy that I am, the radio guy, of course. I go set a pick, and he looks down on me. He's got six inches to look down, and he says, "CB, I don't need that." <laughs> About thirty feet, jump shot, <laughs> swish, game on. Um, had I had the uh, the Air Jordans on too, no less, the red and black ones, and it was just just crazy. Um, I will tell you, Josh, we were not allowed to, and nor did I think it would be good. To even talk about that, that never got on a broadcast at all. Oh, yeah, I sat back, we played ball with. No, you couldn't let the media know that. So, um, no, we never talked about. Remember, and you still have it now, more, more in AA than AAA, but there's that weight boss where the guys go to the gym, mm-hmm. and he would mess around, mess around, because there's a court in most gyms, just mess around a little bit. Um, but the time he played was that August day. My wife was pregnant and he actually wound up rubbing her stomach and out came my daughter two days later. <laughs> a Wait a story. minute. He, he
0: Michael Jordan rubbed your wife's stomach. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you got to allow him to, right? He's Michael right. Jordan. I, mean, I don't, I don't know if I'd let Josh, uh, Josh <laughs> Sushan come and, and uh, you know, rub my wife's stomach, but uh, we let Michael do it. And, you know, la, la, la. And, and she laughed. And uh, two days later, out came my, uh, my eldest daughter, Chloe. That is awesome. That is absolutely mm-hmm. awesome. Um, so in 1995,
0: Jordan goes to spring training. They wanted him to cross the picket line. He said he wasn't going to do it. And that basically ended his baseball career. And he went back to basketball. If he had played a second season, do you think he would have been back at double A? Do you think triple A? What, what he had played in the Arizona Fall League and he had played much better there. Where do you think he would have been in 1995?
1: I could tell you exactly what would have happened. He would have went to Nashville, broken camp in AAA Nashville. Um, he would have been there for a couple of months, and then he would have gotten called up to Chicago. Now, Ron Schuler never called and told me that plan. Dan Evans didn't tell me, hey, CB, this is what we got for Michael. But you you just really had a sense of that was going to happen. Back to Birmingham, no, because there wasn't a lot left to prove. Um, up to Nashville, because you got he's 31, 32 at that time, so you got to test him to see if he can hit those curveballs and change-ups and sliders. Um, and, again, I think it would have been two weeks and then uh, – or two weeks, rather, two months, and then up to Chicago. Different ballpark
0: now than in 1994 for Birmingham, but what are your daily reminders about the time that Michael Jordan played baseball in Birmingham?
1: Here, more than anything else. Now, that used to be all dark brown, by the way. Um, but this is where you have it, more than anything else. And it, it's almost as when you see somebody during, uh, that you know that was around during that Jordan year, there's a secret smile, secret handshake, some sort of telepathic connection, you know that I know that you know that you were there. Um, you know, it, it's I'm not doing this interview with you. I've known your name and your abilities for quite a long time. This is the first time we've ever talked. So just think about the magnitude of that. So you asked about the memories and, you know, how long does it still? Well, first, again, everything is right here. But second of all, 26 years later, we're interviewing from Birmingham to Albuquerque. And just it's, it's kind of, you know, mind boggling in itself.
0: Yeah, this is kind of dark and a somewhat random story. But in 2001, I was covering the Giants when Barry Bonds ended up hitting 73 home runs and and breaking the record, a single season record. And I remember at some point late in that season, one of the other beat writers, I was at the Tribune. I'm pretty sure it was Dan Brown, who was at the San Jose Mercury News. And pretty sure it it was Brownie. And he said if we die tomorrow, do you think the first sentence of our obituary contains the name Barry Bonds? And I remember thinking, yes, absolutely. It would be Josh Sushan, comma, who covered the Giants when Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs, comma, died yesterday. (laughs) And so I'm wondering, is the first sentence of your obituary going to include Michael Jordan?
1: There's no question it will. No question. I I don't deny it. I I don't put up a front. Absolutely. Who am I without him? (laughs) Right now.
0: Do the do the Barons still sell uh, Michael Jordan jerseys at all, or Michael Jordan Jordan shorts? Uh, shirts?
1: Yeah, Monday after the last dance goes Sunday, and, and we're on it. Monday, you want to get in line? Yeah, I, I wish I owned the Barons Monday because the merchandise sales are going to go bananas. They will go off the wall. Uh, yeah, we saw. I tell you what, for a couple of years, that forty five jersey was just you just couldn't get one. Yeah, you buy it order it in out in out in out.
0: Who's the second most famous player who has played for the Birmingham Barons?
1: Uh, A rehab stint for Bo Jackson, four games the year before I got there, 91. But (sighs) Willie Mays was the Birmingham Black Barons. But the face of the Barons, if you ask me, is Frank Thomas. And and Frank was the minor league player of the year in nineteen ninety. And obviously went on to have a hall of fame career and he spent the entire season in Birmingham. I think it was maybe got called up in July, August, something like that. But I'm saying April, May, June, most of July, he was there. So, um, and, and, you know, it's funny because Jordan has pushed Frank, they were in the same city together, but he's pushed him. Like, you know, Jordan played with the Barons and people got to, Oh yeah, I forgot about Frank.
0: That actually reminds me. I think I have a bunch of Frank Thomas minor league baseball cards somewhere in a chest that are collecting mm-hmm. dust along with my Robin Ventura cards, which I thought were going to be worth a fortune, <laughs> but, but Robin still had a very good career. Um, it, it, like if I, if I were to, if, if um, is there like anything else around the new ballpark where you're just walking around that you would see Jordan's name, Jordan's pictures, uh, other things like that.
1: Yeah, that that's a, um, I wish I had a picture of it, but in the new ballpark, I think it's 30, maybe 40 feet high and probably 20 feet um, width. It is, um, we'll call it a billboard for lack of a better word, but um, like like a cloth, painted cloth, I guess. And there it hangs from the top level all the way to the bottom, clearly in his Baron's uniform and with this smile, um, yeah, so you, you, that's, that's the biggest one. On the other side of that was our championship photo last time, uh, from 2013 when we opened the ballpark, but that right there, um, and as you go through the concourse, we've taken a bunch of old Barons uh, players, Satchel Paige, Willie Mays, Maglio Ordonez, Tito Francona, and Michael's name is there, and that's how the sections go, okay, we'll meet you in. 204, but we'll meet you in Tito Francona's section, or we'll meet you in in the Jordan section. So that's how we did that. Um, We, at, at the Hoover Met, which we don't play anymore, but the Hoover Met, it was called the Michael Jordan Banquet Room. We have a different corporate name for it now at the new ballpark. But I tell you what, he made a lot of teams, including ours, a lot of teams and league, a
0: lot of money. Shoot. I just think about when Manny Ramirez had three rehab games on Albuquerque and he only played in two and what a difference that is. I I have this chart for the isotopes that shows their attendance and it's Mm -hmm. pretty much a straight line that really doesn't go up or down too much. And then there's one year that it shoots up. That's 2009 when people asked me about it. And I said, that's because of three games with Manny Ramirez, which were Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where there was no other promotion and it would have been one of the smallest nights of the year. And that's the difference of just three games, I can't even imagine the difference of 70 home games.
1: Right, right. And, and I'll tell you another guy, because you're a Dodger guy, um, Steve Sachs was in the lineup for us. And who knew? Yeah, you know, I mean, no one remembers. I had to open my scorebook just to remind myself, oh, yeah, Sachs was there. And he was doing an interview recently on MLB Network. And they asked him about it. And he was like, you know, for the first time in his life, he was an afterthought. You know, he was pretty much, you know, uh, in my baseball watching, he was one of the men, you know, good looking, great ball player, Yankee fan, Dodger guy. He had it all. And he was nobody in 1994. He could just go in the locker room like, like he was any of those other guys I mentioned earlier. You wouldn't even know it. As we
0: wrap this up, as you're watching The Last Dance, what are some of the the biggest things? And, of course, the episodes that are uh, coming up, 7 to 8, I think is when we're going to see more about him walking away from basketball and going to baseball. What are are just some of the biggest things that are kind of standing out to you?
1: Well, the rest of the world is seeing what we saw. And what I had to myself in 1994, the world now has a chance to see his competitiveness, his drive, his honesty, um, all these good qualities. And the fact that when he said on camera he was fried at the end of 93, couldn't do it anymore, i got to get out of here, Um, we saw that in the locker room. Didn't talk about it, but just saw it, and you understood that this was legit. So I'm happy the rest of the world now opened up this – Oyster ESPN opened it up for the rest of the world to see what we saw uh, in 1994. And a lot of us, that group, as I mentioned, we're still fairly, uh, very close on the telephone. Um, Terry Francona is a mentor to me. Mike Barnett is one of my best friends. And so is Kirk champion our pitching coach. Uh, George Kohler remains in the group as, as a good friend. And, and I think, um, indirectly, Michael is still aware of what everybody else is doing.
0: That's awesome. That is so cool. Any other stories or subjects that I forgot to ask that, that I should have asked about uh, that year with MJ in Birmingham?
1: Well, anything else I couldn't talk about because we'd get censored and, you know, <laughs> thrown out. No, I'm, I'm kidding. You know, really just, you covered everything. And, and it's at this point, it's not easy for other broadcasters to like, well, how do I ask a question? that hasn't been asked before, you know? So I, I I envy that. And as, here's my speech and and I I want you to understand this, um, right now, and, and this hopefully will be watched years from now and years from now, but right now during this pandemic, when you go back to 2020, May of 2020 where we're at, okay, we know about the heroes of the world. They are the, um, Our our nurses and our doctors, our surgeons, our fire, our police. There's an unsung group of announcers and and people in my business, your business, our business that are coming up with content when there is nothing to talk about. And I salute you and all the talk shows in Albuquerque and other cities trying to do what you're doing. I'm a play-by-play guy. You get me in an event, I'll call it, but I don't have to sit and wonder who's coming on when there's no game to talk about. So I I just wanted to add that has really nothing to do with Jordan, uh, because you've covered everything, but it's my way of saying thank you for thinking of me, and and thank you for grinding and working really hard. Well, thank you for that.
0: That was great. Um, I love that we got a chance to to meet over Zoom. I hope that we can meet in person one day. Um, Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I've been to
1: your city once on my way out to Bakersfield, my first ever job, pit stop in, in uh, Albuquerque. You were probably in like, you know, kindergarten at that time. But uh, that being said, thanks for having me. Uh, stay healthy and stay safe. That was Kurt Bloom, and this
0: is Life Around the Seams.